Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trust and estates, business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management and leadership, and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory Housing and Business Centers, and Carson Private Client. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Amanda Copeland. Amanda is a mental health counselor, entrepreneur, and thought leader who creates innovative solutions to fill gaps in the mental health care system. In 2016, Amanda created Copeland Consulting, a nationwide concierge mental health treatment team service. Amanda is passionate about helping people achieve mental wellness and creating sustainable support systems and solutions which integrate seamlessly into real life. She is a speaker and a nationally sought-after consultant who specializes in creating unique treatment plans and recommendations for individuals struggling with psychological concerns such as addictions, eating disorders, lack of motivation, and other issues impacting mental wellness. She is particularly adept at involving trusted advisors and family members in order to create the greatest impact. Amanda and I talked a little bit about some of the topics. I think the list of topics we came up that we could discuss was somewhat endless, 
And I did want to note that you recently published with our mutual friend who introduced us, Martin Shankman. And that article was actually directed at the professionals who serve in this area. And I just wanted to tell you that I really appreciated that contribution and think it was much needed and a great article and was actually thinking we should add one more podcast to our list that we're doing and discuss that topic. But what we are going to talk about today was the title, and you came up with this title and I really like it, Everyone's Life is Worth Fighting for, Mental Health Services for Seniors. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Then we're going to do another episode where we are going to talk about preserving the autonomy and dignity while providing protection to estate planning clients. Thanks for joining me today, Amanda. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here and excited that you read my article. I never know who reads these things, if they just go out into the ether and hit nobody or if, you know, it actually impacts people. So thank you for sharing that you read it. So, yeah, and I'll bet you there's a lot of readers because I think that topic is and it was I think it came out during May, which is mental mental health month, I think, for awareness month. Right. So there is a push on. So we did that even on the podcast. We actually talked to a guy who does one of the Bar Association's mental health programs. And we put out a couple things on that trying to reach that audience. And so I was just noting that that was a timely topic to go out in the month of May and super important. But I'll bet you had a strong readership. What happens is you'll be at a conference and somebody will mention that they read that article or you'll get an email three or four years from now about it that how you changed their life by writing about it because it's just the way it works. But thanks for putting that out there. Can you just explain today's topic, every life is worth fighting for in the concept of mental health for seniors? What do we mean when we're talking about that topic? Um, so this year has been an interesting year. I think uh, we tend to get different populations and waves, but this year we've gotten a lot of different um, seniors who are struggling with mental health issues. And for a long time, I've thought about how in this society, once you get past a certain age or a cer- or you're able to provide a certain value, you're kind of thrown away and disregarded. And so uh, I think, you know, whether you're put in a nursing home or your quality of life um, just doesn't matter to the people around you anymore. It's like, I think people start to lose more hope in themselves and become increasingly depressed. Um, You know, a great example is young people. We have interventions all the time when they are depressed, when they are uh, addicted to substances, when they are, you know, struggling with eating disorders or other mental health disorders. But, you know, here's grandpa drinking every day. We say, oh, that's just grandpa. Leave him alone. You know, he's he's old. He's not going to change. And yet, you know, there's ER visit after ER visit after ER visit, and nobody steps up to say his life is worth fighting for in the same way that they would with young people. So um, being able to be a part of many older people's stories this year and many older people's recoveries this year, it has just blown my mind um, at their resilience and the special issues facing them And, you know, especially with the pandemic, we've all faced increasing loneliness and isolation, and that's been even more prevalent for older, older populations. See, I have a mom who just turned 91 in May and she shares and she's pretty healthy. She still drives. She's living independently. She is looking at moving into independent living, living so that she has others who are nearby. But 
along the line of what you said, which I think is accurate, and this happened when she was only 80 and in really pretty good health at that point, she says she went to see a physician and she was concerned with a particular health issue. It wasn't a mental health issue, which is what we're talking about today, but whatever it was in terms of health. And I'll remember what she said to me, which she said, well, you know, I went in to see Dr. X today. And the thing is, they really didn't seem to pay that much attention to what was going on and looked at me like, well, you're generally healthy. So like, and she said, well, it's not that, what is it? Because I'm healthy for an 80 year old. It doesn't mean I want to be even better. Whatever years I left, I want to live at my very best. And I think that's true for both physical and mental health. And so when it comes to the estate planning process, why does this topic matter for those of us who are doing estate planning? I mean, so I I think it matters for so many reasons. Um, So I want to kind of set a little bit of a background. So at least one in four older adults experience some mental disorder. Okay, so in the general population, it's one in five. Some people say one in four. But, um, you know, with the population aging, that set of seniors, the number of seniors with mental health disorders is expected to double by 2030. So think about what that means in the estate planning arena. Now, people that are um, 85 and older, they have the highest suicide rate of any each group. Um, Two-thirds of seniors with mental health problems don't get the treatment they need. There's this huge treatment gap because people just either talk around them or, you know, put them away somewhere or just let them kind of live out the last days of their lives doing what they're doing because they don't want to create more problems. For, you know, these older adults, um, 65% of people, 65 and older, report high-risk drinking. That means that they've uh, exceeded daily guidelines in the last um, week, in the past year. And then what's more concerning is that more than a tenth of these adults age 65 and older currently binge drink. So that means they're having five or more drinks on the same occasion for men and four or more drinks on the same occasion for women. Now, these elderly people, 11% of them go to the hospital and get admitted because of drug and alcohol-related issues, and 14% of alcohol-related admissions are emergency room visits. 20% end up in the psychiatric ward because of uh, because of alcohol or drugs. So, um, for these seniors, the the reality of their situation is that they're going in for at this for substances at the same rate as heart attacks. So, like this is a big big problem for them Um, and as far as estate planning you know if they are killing themselves at high rates if they are depressed at high rates if they are using substances at high high rates what does that mean for their capacity uh, in terms of making decisions and what does that mean for their ability to take care of themselves without intervention or further help so I as an estate planner would have, and I have a fairly significant senior population in my practice. So if I know that the stats are that one out of five of the clients of a certain age, so what's defined as senior? Is that 65 and over? Or what is, is there an age limit or is it really related to other characteristics? You're laughing, so that must be a good question. It's it's the AARP line. So when when you're able to get AARP and 65, you're counted as a senior. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So that's actually pretty young in the scheme of my world. So, but let's say that, so what I know is somebody who does estate planning, that one out of five might have some kind of mental health issue. And obviously there's a big range of what that might be. Some people get all uptight. It's like, well, okay, it could be like, you know, some mild anxiety or it could be a severe case of schizophrenia or, or, you know, that it's, but I think that that when we give those numbers, we're referring to the entire array of things that can happen. Mm-hmm. And, but anyway, so we know that statistic as a state planner client in that uh, very young senior age or any of the ages, I'm just being kind of facetious about the AARP role, but comes in to see us. How can we ascertain whether we should be concerned about the particular client that's across from us? I think that's a good question. I think it kind of goes into two two different paths, right? Have you known this person for an extended amount of time? Or is this a new person coming in that you're working with for the first time? Um, if you know that person for an extended period of time, the likelihood is you know their baseline. And so you know what varies from the baseline. If you don't know that person, then I think being able to start asking questions, it's its a very interesting thing. We ask people about health histories and, and different things that are uh, very relevant in terms of planning, but there's this stigma with mental health. And so people don't ask the question, even though it's incredibly relevant to planning, um, both financial planning, estate planning, all, all of the things. But being able to do a thorough introduction to the client and understanding and being able to have people around them who can also fill you in on the important elements of that person's life. So um, if that person has a history of depression, a history of schizophrenia, a history of uh, bipolar, I think different with serious mental illnesses um, that are very, very incredibly biochemical um, and medication dependent for a lifetime, people's body changes. And so in those changes and increased times of stress, sometimes medication, like the meds that they're on, they don't work in the same way and they become destabilized and they need help recalibrating and, you know, getting back on board. Uh, If you know that in advance, then it helps you to put things in place where that person could be adequately cared for if they should become destabilized. I think that's a hugely important point. I'm a person who has a thyroid stuff, which is super common, and there's no stigma with it, right? But so I take Synthroid, and what I know is that depending on the level of stress in my life, the Synthroid might work at the same dose or it might not. And the same thing is true of anything. There can be some kind of, yeah, I think, COVID impacted a whole lot of medications or other health issues, things like that. But let's say, you know, my thought is that really as an estate planner, having a conversation about capacity, and I actually do this even with clients at a younger age, is an easy place to build that in. Fortunately, a lot of clients as they're aging have an awareness that at a point there's going to be some incapacity. I've had clients, well, how do we protect ourselves from the people who knock on our doorbell and we're susceptible 
type of incapacity, which was a question I got asked by a client several years ago. I was like, oh, I'm thinking while well, husband and wife are both at home between the two of them. But the fact is they're aging together. And I've also had people, two people, there's this assumption in my mind that if you have a husband and wife and they're living together, one of them is going to be able to dial the phone or one's going to be able, but that's not always the case as I found numerous times. So seems like one of the things that we can do as estate planners is to have conversations about incapacity from an early stage and explain that incapacity planning is actually part of estate planning and probably the part you really care about. Because frankly, if I'm dead, I'm dead. And then it's my beneficiaries figuring out who's getting the money. But I care a lot about what it's like if I'm, you know, suffering from early onset dementia or just having my synthroid isn't working. And so I'm a little, you know, not as clear as I normally am or something like that, whatever the case might be for an aging person. So having conversations about that, but would you say like, so my process is to have a conversation about incapacity in general and what we protect them from. And the other thing that I learned, and I'm just kind of curious what you think about this is a strategy where you just ask a question. So we all have our checklist of stuff when we're doing estate planning and we're going to get through this list of questions and we send our little intake forms. But what I find is really important is the conversation at the first meeting and a skill that I think is one of the best skills I was taught, which is then you can run through your checklist, let them respond, but make sure you ask something, some open-ended question like, now what else is going on? And then go totally silent and stay silent, which is a really the hardest part of the skill. And it's hard for me, I'll be honest, but I've learned the incredible value of asking the question about what all is going on, what else is going on, and going silent, because that's when you get the list of things such as a mental health issue or a family issue or something like that. But do you have other thoughts on the process that we can use? I'm a big fan of normalizing. So uh, being able to ask discovery questions like, is there anyone in your family who struggles from a, a physical or mental health disorder? Like just making it flow so uh, smoothly, you know, and grouping it with medical, which isn't uh, stigmatized as mental health is and leaving it open. I think the more you can act normal about it, the more non-judgmental you are the more people will feel safe saying it to you especially if you say this is a question we ask everyone because people's biggest fear is to be shamed and judged so normalize it i like that phrase a lot so it's just part of my routine of asking questions so whereas i talk about incapacity and talk about both mental and physical that would be fairly normal so in my world that works? Yeah. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. At Foster Group, we know there are more important things than money. There's the joy of providing a lovely home for your family, the excitement of an early retirement, the relief knowing that an unexpected emergency won't ruin your finances. At Foster Group, we're invested in the things that make life, life and how to get there. Foster Group, your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. 
Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. So if you're, and so part of, and I've always said, I think my standing joke, and I think I shared this with you when we chatted, is that I've always said as doing what I do for a living is I really need to have a psychology degree. So of course I went and worked on that during the pandemic rather than watching Netflix, but that's my weirdness. So, but at the end of the day, I'm a legal expert, not a mental health expert, despite having studied it a little bit. But let's say you have no mental health background as a lawyer and you're doing estate planning. How do you really determine what are the lines between an estate plan that's too rigid and maybe overprotective, which would be easy to do? And especially, this is asking more questions than one in one, so you can make me break these out if that's helpful. But with that stigma of mental health, once they've identified a mental health issue, want to be a little bit careful about getting too rigid just because this is a mental health issue as opposed to something else. But between the sort of overly protective, rigid estate plan and something that is too loose. Yeah, I, th- um, I think there people with legal backgrounds can get very, very creative when they have a partnership with a mental health counselor who can tell them and walk them down the road with a specific person. These are the things to understand when they're unstable. These are the things to look out for. Um, is it possible to do something like make them a co-trustee where both parties have to sign off? Right. And like, um, is it possible to put in some kind of criteria where any major decision that's above XYZ amount has to, you know, be delayed by 48, 72 hours before the decision's made, especially people who are in a manic episode? They are very, very impulsive people who are really struggling and wanting drugs or alcohol in the moment and need the the money to do it. Uh, very impulsive and will come up with all kinds of creative reasons to get money. Um, and so if you understand what the trajectory looks like for a specific person, given the symptomology that they've exhibited in the past, you can partner with them in creating a plan that works to both protect them and preserve autonomy. So, um, you know, with, with if you sub, uh, suspect substance use or if they're saying out of nowhere, I need a hundred grand to do this thing. Well, okay, like maybe we just agree to put in place that there's a drug test, but you're partnering with them in advance and you're not saying I'm putting this on you. They're agreeing that, yeah, this this probably should be the process. Um, if they're, you know, asking for a hundred grand and they've been on a, a binge spending spree, then maybe that's not the time to give that person a hundred grand. And you agree that they go see their counselor first and have their counselor sign off that they're currently stable because it seems to you, given the baseline they gave you and their symptomology, that they're currently unstable. So being able to put guardrails without making them dead ends is essential and getting that person's buy-in. It's like the younger person is willing to talk about what would happen if they began to lose cognitive functioning. By the time they're losing cognitive functioning, they're so scared for people to take things from them or for other people to know or treat them differently that they're more unwilling to work with you. 
And it's kind of the same thing with people who are actively experiencing symptoms versus they are in a place that's stable. And so one of my thoughts is the comment you made earlier about normalizing the discussions as part of the process, including very early on the first time you see a client. Obviously, if the first time you see them is they're 89 years old, which I rarely, my clients are all long-term, so that's the nature of my practice. But I know that not everybody's practice works like that. But that normalizing from an early phase of having you know conversations about all of the different types of issues that are, will arise. And again, I explain it in the, in the in terms of incapacity planning, whether you get in a car wreck, whether you get sick with a certain type of thing, or you're, you have a mental illness type of thing. So, but one of the things that you've used the word unstable a couple times. So how do you identify that they're unstable, say from a mental health perspective, versus just making poor decisions that you don't agree with? Um, again, I think part of it's knowing their baseline. The other part is knowing their symptomology. And the other part is someone who's just wanting to make poor decisions that you don't agree with will continue to engage in a conversation with you. Most rational people will be willing to have a conversation, even if in the end they still disagree with your logic. Um, you know, they'd be willing to delay uh, making the decision by 72 hours. There are very few decisions in life that need to be made inside of that window. Um, so, you know, they are engaged with you. They're willing to talk to you face to face. They are, um, you know, even if you don't agree with their logic, they have a logic and, uh, their train of thought is linear. Um, and, you know, they can reasonably rationalize what it is they're trying to do. And I think there's, for some families that have a lot of money, in addition to the mental health uh, element of things, there are some people that are just never taught certain decision-making skills. And there are some people that are just never taught certain life skills. And then when you add layers of mental health, uh, mental illness to it, it's it's a lot more confusing what's what. What's a, a knowledge and skill deficit and what's active symptomology. So if you were to identify, say, maybe the top five, but maybe you have three or maybe you have seven, I don't care what the number is, but say the top best practices for an estate planner to keep in mind when working with clients with mental health concerns. It's a good question. Um, number one, ask the questions and normalize them as a, as a part of every single discovery meeting, introductory meeting, whatever you want to call it, and make sure that you're not shying away because of your own stigma or fear of discussing it. I think a lot of times people feel like if they don't have the answers, they don't want to go there and you don't have to be a mental health professional to ask these questions about planning just like with the physical health you don't have to be a doctor to ask them to know how to plan for them number two would be consult with a mental health professional if this is an issue above and beyond uh anxiety depression 
that kind of thing, which typically doesn't require the same degree of planning as more serious mental health issues, um, whether that's schizophrenia, bipolar, eating disorders is a big one. Um, Addiction is another big one. So not every single case of somebody who has a mental health disorder requires consulting with a counselor, but the more serious ones, I would say that's a good way to play it safe because it will require more safeguards if they get destabilized. Uh, Number three, I've seen this a lot that people talk around the person. Um, whether that's a senior or somebody with mental health issues, people are talking around them instead of to them. And I think just remembering that we're all human and have the right and the desire to be seen, heard, and involved in our own well-being and life planning. So as we reach the end of our episode today, do you have any last thoughts? Yes, I do. Um, I think I think my last thoughts are really around the idea that we're more similar than dissimilar, and that although there are differences between people, we all have the same desire, and we're all valuable, and we all need help. So clients with mental health issues... Like, it's just a unique struggle that they're having, but they still have the same desires that you do and the same, you know, the same dreams. Liz, we've reached the end of our episode. I want to, first of all, thank you for joining me today, Amanda. And then I want to thank her sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory and Housing, and Carson Private Client. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.